Hey, so my name is Steve. So glad you are here. I'm one of the pastors here at Awakening. And uh, we've been in a series uh, called Workology, which, yes, it's a word that we made up. And we've basically defined it as this, the study of work and how to make it work for you. And today we, we engage this conversation and sort of bring this intersection that I think is pretty applicable to probably where all of you are at, whether you're a student or working or stay-at-home mom or all across the spectrum. And here's where I want us to begin. It's a feeling that we all kind of share together, a universal thing, and it's this feeling that we all know the feeling of being far too busy. Yes? Yes, I think there's more than three of you that think that feel that, but um, but we'll continue. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we know what it's like even to be overscheduled, have too much going on in our life, and then with that, to be overwhelmed, and maybe even we hit and have hit a point of exhaustion or just so stressed out about it all, and maybe we've even been burned out or feel that even now. At times in some of our lives, we, we, we if we're honest, find ourselves going at Mach 2 speed, we find ourselves in this sort of perpetual hurry at times. I know this is true in my own life. And, and part of it is we, we keep running faster and faster. We keep taking on uh, new obligation after new obligation. We never say no. And, and I get it. The demands of work or in some cases school, they're constant, sometimes intense. And, and quite honestly, sometimes they can be unreasonable, don't you think? I know I've been there at times as well. And then you throw in, for some of you who are in family situations, right, you have all the responsibilities of that, or just to keep up with your home. There's so much to manage, so much to maintain. And I think it's pretty universal that we all kind of understand there's so much to juggle in life. And we feel that in different ways, right, with our schedule, with our time, with our even pace of life. I mean, that is life, and that is real for all of us, to one degree or another. We feel it at different levels. We feel it to different degrees, especially considering we're in the Silicon Valley. We really feel it. And I mean, I, I know some of you also, as, as this conversation unfolds, will have this feeling inside or thought inside that much, there's much in your life that, that you don't have the choice, or at least some in your life, that you don't have the choice in those matters. But, but I, I, would, I would just invite you this morning to consider a few things. Because I believe one thing to be true for all of us is that no matter what circumstances we're in, no matter how many things we are juggling or how uh, challenging that dynamics are, we can all learn to adjust the way we live in a way that moves us toward uh, wiser living and healthier living. In many cases, this is what we should do at least what I think. And beyond that, when you look at the scriptures, which we'll do in a few moments, they speak to this conversation about time and schedule and pace of life and life and rhythm of life. Speaks to this conversation about work and all the rest of our lives and puts it in a really unique perspective. If we choose not to look at how we are living, how we are going about that, how we are handling all life's demands, if we simply let life happen to us, rather than taking responsibility for what we do with our time, which is our lives, I think it can be a dangerous thing. I also think if we don't change how we live, our our overcomplicated, really overscheduled world will begin to feel frighteningly normal. And we'll become accustomed to life at a frantic pace and no longer be able to discern the difference between what's important and what's the unessential. And that's, again, a dangerous thing. Because when we allow our one and only life to get out of control, 
we end up doing things that really don't matter, and we end up sacrificing things that really do matter. I don't think that's how any of us really want to live. The way we navigate our time, our schedule, our pace of life affects really everything that we do. The way we engage relationships, the way that we work, the way that we relate to God, the way that we approach family and friendships, and so much more. And this morning, what I want to share with you are five critical truths that I believe can guide us towards navigating the rhythms of our lives in wiser and healthier ways. So so if we step back and sort of think about time for a second, at the end of the day, your time is your life. So as your time goes, so goes your life. As your schedule goes, so goes your life when it comes down to it. And one of the things that's critical to embrace when it comes to our time, when it comes to how I would describe establishing and maintaining a healthy rhythm of life, is this. This is the first critical truth, that I believe we must embrace our limits. I know, I have a friend who would say to that, you know, that gets a big (laughs) D-U-H, you know, nothing new, right? But it has to be said, because here's the thing, most of us don't live as if this is true, that we have limits, at least we try not to. And I get it, some of you have extraordinary capacity, probably a lot of you, I've met some of you, with extraordinary capacity, but the truth remains that none of us can do it all, none of us can have it all, none of us can be it all or fit it all in. And so for our own good and for the good of those we love, we have to embrace that we are human beings with limitations. I know we don't like that, but if we live our life always pushing to the max, always taking on all that we possibly can, never saying no, even to good opportunities. If we live like that, we will eventually hit a point where we will quit enjoying our life, where we'll be dissatisfied and frustrated, we'll be stressed out, we'll be even perhaps depressed or burnout. And in the end, I don't think that's how any of us want to live. And I certainly don't think that's how God designed us to live. Yet we find ourselves in the kind of rub of that. I know, because I feel this too, the days are too short. I want to read way more than I can get to. I want to accomplish way more than I can accomplish. I want to spend time with people I can't quite get enough time to spend with them, or, or go places, or travel places. I mean, the list goes on and on that I can't fit into my life, but this is life. And we are human beings with limits, and so to embrace that as reality is quite simple to understand, but it's harder to do, I think, than we sometimes give it credit for And I know as this conversation sort of unfolds today, I mean, there there might be pushback on this because we live where we live, and and, and we live in America for that matter, and and, and we sort of have this thought, right? We tend to think, if I don't do as much as I possibly can, I will never make it. Ever had that thought in some way or another? Well, I have a question. What is it? What is it? I don't know, but I won't make it, we sort of think, right? Well, We better make sure we're living for the right it, I would propose, because we can spend our whole lives trying to make it but don't even know what it is or realize it was the wrong it, don't want to do that. And let's be honest, we're probably mostly too busy to even think about it, whatever it might be. But we have to know what it is. If we're going to pack our life full of things to make it, don't we? Maybe it came from your parents, whatever your it is. Maybe it came from some other life experience that shaped you that way. But somewhere along the way, we decide 
what it is. And we start working and living for that thing, whatever that thing, elusive as it may be, is. But we don't even know. We don't even know what it is. We don't even have clarity. And for some, in our attempt to make as much progress as possible, to accomplish all we can, to seize every opportunity in front of us, we rev up the engine, we take on more and more, we increase our velocity, and basically, we invite crazy into our lives. I've been there. And we don't even know what we really want sometimes. What do we really want out of life? We're just running fast, running hard, way too much on our plate. And at some point, life starts to feel unsustainable, overwhelming, overcomplicated. And we begin to run on fumes. Maybe you've been there. And our soul becomes desperate for spiritual oxygen. Why? Because we fail to truly embrace the simple truth that we can't do it all. That we can't pack it all in, we can't have it all, we can't fit it all in. And that's just life. And it brings us to the second critical truth that we need, along with embracing our limits. The other thing we need to do to embody a healthy rhythm of life is this, establish and maintain margin. Because when there's no margin, when there's no, you could say, breathing room, you know what starts to happen? Several things. One thing that starts to happen, we feel this, our stress rises. When there's no margin, our stress just goes up and up and up and up. This is true in every arena of life. I mean, think about money, right? When you, when you don't have margin or breathing room with your money, right, you, you have $1 if that left over, and then the car breaks down, our stress goes up. Then we find out how much the car actually costs, and our stress goes more, and it builds and builds. And this is true in every life. It is true in our work, in our relationships, in our family, in our finances. With less margin comes more stress. And then another thing that happens when there's no margin is our focus narrows. With no margin, we get so focused on the area where there's no breathing room, so focused on that one thing that we lose awareness of the other things around us. Yeah, there are moments during a week that we have to get super extraordinarily focused on something, right? That comes with life. But if we live this way all the time, we'll begin to neglect important things in our lives, accidentally and unintentionally, things that really matter to us. And consequently, something else happens. Our relationships suffer. So you may have the thought, or you may be on the other side of the equation here, Dad, you get home so late. And on the weekends, you're always on your computer, right? The relationship suffers because there's no margin. Mom, you're always checking your email or on your phone or cleaning the house. Or maybe to your roommate, bro, we never hang out anymore. You're always traveling or you get home so late. Or man, can you do more homework? I want to hang, right? On and on the reasons go. But when there's no space for anything else, no margin, that thing that really brings us the most enjoyment in life, relationships, they suffer. And I know some of you might say in your mind, you know, it's the nature of the industry I'm in, and yeah, that's part of it. Or it's the season of life I'm in, and yeah, that's part of it. There's complicated things sometimes. But I I think there's a more fundamental thing that drives all of this. It drives so much of why we don't really embrace our limits. It drives so much of why we don't live with margin. And if we're willing to look at this driver, and if we really understand this underlying thing that drives us... I believe this is significant because I believe this can help us make tremendous progress when it comes to navigating the rhythms of our life. But if we don't address this driver, on the other hand, I don't think we'll make much progress. So what's the driver? 
in a word, fear. See, we need to address our fears. It's so critical. We all have fears. We fear something. If I don't do that, I'm afraid that this will happen or not happen. If I tell them I can't make it, I'm afraid that. If I have that conversation, I'm afraid that. If I take my kids out of those events, I'm afraid that. If I tell my son he can do baseball, but he can't do basketball, Cub Scouts, swimming, football, and soccer all at the same time, I'm afraid that. And I'm afraid that it is this fear that drives so much of the activity of our lives. We fear all kinds of things. We fear missing out. Or if we have kids like me, we fear that our kids will miss out. If you're single, you might have more flexibility and time, but you, you, you may drive yourself crazy doing way too much. There's this fear, if you're honest, that if you don't go there or don't do that or don't say yes to that opportunity or sign up for that, then you think, I'm going to miss out. Or we fear falling behind. We look around and we see all the stuff that people are doing and experiencing and even accomplishing and we compare. We compare ourselves to where they live, what they wear, who their friends are. We compare ourselves to their job and what they own and where they like to vacation and all kinds of things. And there's this fear in us that drives it all, that we'll fall behind. Behind what exactly? Or maybe... You're not the one with the fear, but maybe you're dating someone or married to someone or a parent is the one who puts the pressure on you. And you feel that because they fear falling, that you'll fall behind. And then, then we fear something, I think universally we fear this at some level. We fear that our lives won't matter much. I love what Pastor Andy Stanley says. And our fear of not mattering much has the potential to draw us away from what matters most. If we let that fear win, if we let that fear rule our lives, that's what happens, which is why we must identify our fears and sort out what's really driving us, what's really driving our behavior and activity of our lives. At some point, the issues related to the pace of life, to your time, to your schedule, becomes an issue of faith, when we open the scriptures, God speaks to this issue in so many ways. And it, in, in, in some ways, comes in a sort of unusual way. What we find, though, is this ongoing conversation with God and his people, right, throughout the Old Testament. Then we look at the New Testament, and we see different aspects of this conversation playing out, in particular with Jesus, which we'll look at in a couple minutes. But in essence, the conversation between God and humanity, as we look at scripture, revolves around the contrast of two things, fear and faith. When we discover, well, what we discover, sorry, what we discover in the Bible is, is this, is that if your life is maxed out, if you're running so fast, if you're running at Mach 2 speed, if you're pushing the limits, the Bible in essence says this is a faith issue. Because this is an issue of how much you believe, first and foremost, that God knows your name that he cares for you deeply as a human being, as a man or a woman made in his image with unfathomable value, as a son or daughter, as a beloved kid of God's who he loves so much. And our journey to unhook from all the fears starts right there, which I think causes us to ask ourselves a series of questions, which I'll ask you. How much do you live in the reality of God's love for you? In other words, do you know who you really are according to God and how he feels about you? And do you anchor your life in that truth? 
Do you allow that truth to sink in deeper and deeper along the way as you live in ongoing relationship with God? I love the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 where he prays that the people would be strengthened at their core. And he says, here's how. When you experience the depth and breadth and height and width of God's love, you will find strength beyond what you can imagine. In 1 John 4, we read that God's love drives out fear. And so many followers of Jesus don't or perhaps even haven't experienced that love. They may know it cognitively, but they haven't experienced it. They don't walk in it. And I believe when we walk in that love, the deeper and deeper that journey goes for us, the more and more the fear will be driven out. A long time ago, when the nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt, it had been a slave state. And this is probably... To one degree or another, impossible as to fully imagine, but, but all of this nation was in slavery. And it had been 400 years of them being slaves. So everybody who had not been a slave had already, you know, died. So everyone, all they knew was slavery. So this group of people understood life and understood it in the context of slavery, which meant basically working 24-7. But if you know the story, God eventually leads them out of slavery, takes them in the promised land, establishes them, and now he has to give them rules to live by. Because the only rules they know are the rules of the slave. So we're all familiar in one way or another with the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to ask you to quote all of them, but uh, we probably would fail, I don't know. But uh, we're familiar in general about them. And, and yet in the Old Testament, there's, there's more than 600 other laws or rules or, com- or commands, right, that God gives us, really rules or laws. And the reason there are so many laws, in essence, is because God was establishing a brand new country, brand new nation, brand new way of living, way of thinking, brand new values. And in these laws that God gave, God built in margin into the pace that he desired his people to live with. One of the big rules, you see it in the Ten Commandments, is something you might be familiar with. It's what is called the Sabbath. For the Israelites, the idea of taking an entire day to do no work was incredibly foreign to them. In fact, it was dangerous because those were like the pre-refrigeration days. And, And so if you don't work, you don't eat in essence. And God says to this brand new nation who worked when they woke up and worked all day and they had to work, work, work. That's all they knew. God steps in and he says, one of my top 10 rules is thou shalt take the day offeth. I mean, don't you love a God who says, take a day off? Come to my world, God. Tell me that, right? Well, he did. What do you mean don't work for an entire day? The Israelites thought. We have to milk the cows. We have to gather the crops. Can't miss a crop or we won't eat. We'll starve. We'll fall behind. All the rest. But God knows their circumstances. He put them there. He led them there. He got them there. And he still says, take a day off of all work. Not once. But every seven days, do it once. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees have taken this idea to the extreme. But in the ancient times of Israel, this idea was when the sun goes down on Friday night. This was a Jewish day. Sun goes down is the start of a day. So on Friday night till Saturday when sun goes down, you cease all work. 24 hours, no work. I mean, imagine this, that we lived in a nation, that it was against the law to work. Amen, right? I want that against the law. 
Everyone in the nation pauses for a whole day, Friday night to Saturday night, 24 hours. And God understands all that's going on. So what is he doing? Well, by establishing the Sabbath as a rule, God was teaching his people something very critical. It was to trust, to trust in him. But God, what if we don't bring all the crops in? Trust me. But what if this doesn't happen or this does happen? Trust me. The Sabbath was an expression of a person's trust in God and revealing of the depth of their faith. In essence, God is saying, lay down your fears and your worries and your anxieties and trust me with your life, trust me with your time, trust me with your schedule, slow down your pace, put a halt to your productivity for one day. God knew what was needed for these people and he knows what is needed for us, for the health of our soul, for the health of our relationships, for the health of everything else in our lives. And God even knew that we were susceptible to finding our identity in our work, our worth in what we do, rather than in who we are, our identity in God. And Jesus said something when he came around. He said, in essence, people weren't created for the Sabbath. He told the Pharisees this many times. But the Sabbath was created for people. In other words, God gave you and me, God gave his people the Sabbath as a gift, as a gift to humanity. And that's the fourth critical truth we have to act on, and we find it hard to do, that we honor the Sabbath, Exodus 20, among other places, that we would honor the Sabbath and trust God in that. If you're a follower of Jesus, we as a tribe are to build Sabbath into the rhythm of our lives, strengthening our trust in God as we do it. That means we have to push away from the computer. We have to shut down our devices. We have to shut down all things work-related and choose to be unproductive. Yeah, there's always more to do in my life, too. I know some people think pastors just speak and don't do anything else, but there's a few things going on in my life, and I know there is for you, but there's always more. There's never enough time to do it. But God says to us, I want to teach you to trust me. I want to teach you to pause and slow down, take a break and rest and worship me. So God, you're saying if we don't do all we can do, you're going to multiply the work we did do? Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm going to do. See, when we decide to embrace our limits, when we decide to establish margin and not allow fear to drive our activity and honor the Sabbath, God will multiply our efforts and bear fruit in and through our lives. God wants us to have breathing room. He begs us practically because he says it so many times throughout the scriptures because it's in that space that he knows our trust in him will grow stronger. He knows it's hard. Hundreds of years after the Israelites received the new rules for living, right, we have Jesus come on the scene. He walks into this cultural context. He understands all that, and, he's, and he speaks to this issue. And when we hear his words, there's something in us that, that might think, well, that, that's sort of for that culture. That's not for our culture. That's not for my industry. But Jesus is drawing upon the same idea of trusting in God no matter the circumstances, no matter the context. No, Jesus isn't against goals or success or achievements. He's not even against pursuing, you know, um, you know, making progress in life or making money. He's not against any of that. But Jesus brings clarity to this, this whole conversation, and he offers truth and wisdom that he 
that he informs us with, and it ought to affect everything we do, from work to relationships to all of life. And what he says, quite honestly, might be a little bit irritating, but in Matthew 6, so do not worry, he says. Do not worry. Really? It's just my cynical side. I'll go back to my normal side here. So, sorry, no, do not worry, saying, what shall I eat, or what shall, I, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, right? The, the normal worries of life, don't worry about all that stuff. For the pagans, and by the way, a pagan was a person who did believe in God, but they didn't really care about God or anything that he cared about, and they also believed in other gods. But anyway, for the pagans, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. I mean, there it is. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows that you want to max out your potential, that you want to achieve great things. He knows if you have kids, you want them to do the same. He knows you want to graduate from college. Soon, right? And get a job soon, like now. He knows, that, he knows the needs that you have financially. He knows the difficult relationship you're in. He knows that you're single and wants, want to get married. He knows the pressures that come with school or come with work. He knows all that. He's your heavenly father who's all-knowing and cares about you and all that. And so what if we really believed that our heavenly father knows all that and that he can be trusted including the fears that we have. Because what God is inviting us into is a relationship with him where we learn to trust him in an ever-deepening way, at an ever-deepening level, remembering that he knows what we need. He is right there with us. He is for us. He has our back. He can be trusted with every aspect of our lives. And what if we live that way, refusing to be ruled by fear, Can you imagine living that kind of life? I mean, imagine the freedom that would come with that. This is where Jesus is pointing us and guiding us. And in the next verse, Jesus says something that reframes this entire conversation. He says, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things, all these other things about life, all the worries that you have will be given to you as well. Truth is, we're all seeking something, perhaps someone. We're chasing after stuff, all different stuff. It's not all bad, but we're, we're seeking after security, perhaps, or wealth, or significance, or status, or some other thing. But here's what God is telling us to do. He says, seek God first. Seek his priorities, his kingdom, his righteousness. In other words, stay God-centered. There's a lot of other important things in life. The Bible is not telling us these things are not important, including our work. But we're wired to live with a single-minded focus on God and his priorities. And from that centered place, all the rest of life gets sorted out, gets recalibrated. When this pursuit really is first and primary in your life, our framework for life changes. Our priorities and our values and our perspective shift. We begin to get clarity on what we've been put on this earth to do. And this new reality and conviction guides us to live not for how others want or think we should live from their pressure points, but this frees us to focus on discovering what God's will for our lives really is. And here's the truth. There's only one person who's responsible to make these choices for your life that will determine the sum of your life. That, would de- that will determine the health of your life. It's you. Dallas Willard, I love how he says this very thing. It is the responsibility of every Christ-centered follower 
to carve out a satisfying life under the loving rule of God. And then he adds, or else sin will start to look good. I mean, I hope you see why this is a faith issue. You are the architect of your life under God's loving rule and guidance. It's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not your roommate, not your friend, not your parent. It's you. It's up to you to determine what rhythms and habits and pace is healthy for your soul, is healthy for the relationships in your world. It's up to you to determine what disciplines and practices are healthy for you. And it's not the same for all of us, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, mentally, all those components. And that means you have to figure out what fills you up and what drains you, what you need more of and less of, what gives you life and what does not. You have to identify what you're overdoing and what you're underdoing, don't have enough of. But you are the steward of your time, and your time, in effect, is your life. And your life is a gift from God to be stewarded wisely and well. So it's under God's loving rule and guidance where we choose where and how we will spend our time, how we will navigate our schedule, and what kind of pace is healthy for us and all the significant relationships in our lives. I realize where the rubber meets the road, for some, slight adjustments are needed. And you you come today and you go, yeah, I need to make some adjustments here, which I think is a helpful thing. Stay tuned, one sec. For others of you, there are more significant measures that need to be taken, and you know who you are. Substantial things need to change. And the conversations that some of you might need to have and decisions that some of you might need to make might even frighten you. But for all of us, we have to decide if we're going to allow fear to rule our life. Or if we're going to walk by faith, if we're going to trust in God, if we're going to make the right choices, no matter how difficult those choices may be. And as we come to a close this morning, I want to share two other things. One is, I want to sort of give you a homework assignment. Sorry, students in the house, you get one more of these. But I think it'll be valuable. I want to to give you a homework assignment and tell you a story. Because I want you to consider... How you could redesign, perhaps, your life in a way, how to reorder some things in a way that would be more life-giving, more of a life-giving way of life for you. So if you would take out your bulletin, if you got it, flip to the back of it, back page. There's a few symbols there. There's a plus, there's a minus, there's a greater than and a less than symbol. And this is for you to take home and give more thought to, but... The plus represents, what do you need to add to your schedule? What's not there? Maybe it's been there before, but it's not there anymore. That brings you life, that fills you up, that's just healthy for you to have in your life. And on the minus, right, what do you need to subtract from your life? It's there, it's unhealthy, it's burning you out, it's killing you, it's suffocating you. Maybe it's a person, (laughs) maybe it's something in your schedule, maybe it's a thing that you've signed up for or just sort of committed to and you need to take a look at that. Hey, stay true to your commitments. I'm not saying back out of commitments, but, but look at your life. And in appropriate, wise ways, what do you need to subtract? And then you have the greater than. Well, there might be some of it there, but you need more of it. Or the less than. There might be some of it there, but you need less of it. And I think a reflection like this could, could be advantageous to pretty much all of us if we took it seriously. There's a woman named Bronnie where she's a... Australian hospice nurse, and she has this unique job where she spends the last 12 weeks or so with people who are dying. Some time ago, she began to ask her patients some questions, and one of the questions she asked her patients 
was, do you have any regrets? At the end of their life, do you have any regrets? And over time, she began to see and hear a pattern, and she wrote this stuff down. And what she says gives us some perspective. There's a couple of her findings that I want to draw out, and the first one is this. It was the second highest response to the question she asked about regret. And the second highest response was this. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And that's not probably new or surprising, but listen to this insight that she has. She said this. This came from every male patient I nursed. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been breadwinners. Then she says, all of the men I nursed deeply regretted so much of their lives on the treadmill of a work existence. Wow. There it is. The end of their life, this is what they're saying. Do you know what that means? I mean, especially to men, but I mean, I think it goes beyond that. That if we don't learn to, I'll say, number our days, take this stuff seriously, we will misspend our time, and we will misspend our life, and we will have avoidable regrets. Because when you think you have all the time in the world with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with the season of life you're in even, with those people, with whomever it is, and then you suddenly realize you don't, you don't have all the time in the world. You're only 20 once. You're only 30 once. You're only 40 once. Those who are 50 wish you could do that two or three times. I know, but, but you, only, you can't go back. You can't go back in time. I got two kids. My great, one of my greatest fears is that, I would, that life, fast forward my life, that I would look back and miss their youth and miss all these moments of their life. You can't go back and undo this stuff. And so there's wisdom here that we are confronted with that some of us really need to think about. I know a lot of you are super young, but man, what a great place to be and determine now the convictions that you're going to live with for years to come. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as I close. I want to share the number one most common regret from this lady's asking of the question, and it was this. I wish I had the courage, I wish I would have had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I mean, that's a staggering thing to bump into. The number one thing people said. I don't want to live for the expectations of others. And then she writes about this. She goes on. This was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it is easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even half of their dreams and had to die knowing that this was due to choices they had made or not made. And she says, health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it. It's sort of like we get to fast forward our lives for just a moment. We get to look back, maybe put ourselves in that place and derive the wisdom that these people, in essence, are telling us. That we ought to live every day for that matter, every hour, as if they are numbered, because they are. That's why I love the prayer in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. It's a prayer of Moses who writes this particular psalm. It's in light of this eternal God and that perspective. And Moses says something that's sort of like a prayer. It's a prayer I want to pray over you today. It's a simple prayer, but one I hold on to my heart. It's this pray this for you. God, teach us to number our days 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I don't know about you, but I want to live well. I want to live wisely. I want to live in a way that I experience the kind of life and live the kind of life that God created me to live. There's joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction in that, and we get swept up into work and other things. It's not that those things are bad, but in wrong perspective, overdone. They can do damage to our soul, to our relationships, to our life. So my prayer for all of us is that we would number our days, that we would live with wisdom, and then when we get to the end of our lives, we would not have those two regrets.